You get out of life what you put into it. These are words straight out of Matthew Tom's own mouth. Now, Matthew Toms is one of the most focused, most honest, most decent, hardest working people I have ever met. If his brain was a machine, it'd be a spaceship traveling Mark 100. He moves with such serious pace and his work with the D Group, creating the incredible, iconic art series hotels, shows the level of accomplishment and achievement that Matthew brings to the table. But with Matthew, it's not all a one-way street. Uh, With his work with the Irvine Club and now well aware, he's always been supporting his community and making sure he puts back what he takes out. It has inspired and helped many people. He's really positively impacted many people's lives. But as with any story, it's not always wine and roses. As you will hear, Matthew has had his own moment of self-reflection which was forced upon him by his own drive and relentlessness. Uh, And in this imposed hiatus, he had a change of heart and career path. Uh, And whilst Matthew may not have changed his work ethic, he now knows how and when to take his foot off the pedal. Please enjoy our conversation, and I guarantee you that Matthew's infectious enthusiasm for business and life will rub off on you too. Matthew Toms, co-founder and director of WellAware, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Tony. Great to be here. Now, you're one of the busiest people I've ever met. Uh, When I say busy, I mean, you always move around like you have a purpose. Um, Have you always had such a high level of intensity and focus? I think I have. I think from early days, growing up in a family of four, dad was a school teacher, there was always a lot going on. And whether it was sport, whether it was schooling, whether it was my trumpet, regardless of what was going on, we always had a lot happening. And then once I got into my work, I absolutely loved working, and it just inspired me, and I just kept going and going. At this point, you're a preventative health advocate and business coach slash mentor, um, and this means you you know spend a bit of your time helping others. I note that when you were at school, at Bryant Grammar School, um, you were also a school prefect. So has it always been in your nature to be a giving person? Absolutely. My biggest focus has always been about helping people. And I think it's really been in the last probably 10 years that I've actually recognised that helping people is really what inspires me and what drives me. So what about these traits of helping people? Did you just inherit them? Did you wake up with them or uh, did you sort of um, uh, grow them? I think it's innately always been in me, um, but it's just taken a while for me to actually recognise it. And I actually remember a story and I was in grade, I think I was in grade four in the junior school at Brighton Grammar. And I remember that the grade six kids were giving two of the boys, um, Isaac and Johnny, quite a bit of trouble. And they were grade five boys and they had some physical challenges. And I remember going up to those grade six kids and saying, enough's enough. Now, I was about four foot at the, at the time, <laughs> but, um, but I just said that I'm not going to have that on my watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're living proof in my eyes that you can be super focused on work and still spend quite a bit of your energies giving back to people. Have you ever got the balance wrong? Has the pendulum ever swung too far in one camp? Yeah, great question. I think absolutely it has in time. Um, When I look back, whether it be Irvine Club, whether it be my friends, whether it be family, whether it be work, um, whether it be for my own self, I think if anything, I probably forgot about myself many times over the last 20, 25 years. And again, that's something in the last five years 
I've recognised and needed to move to the top. Um, so let's now track a little bit through your career um, because you've started at Wilson in operations, Wilson Car Parking, <coughs> and, and a bit of sales, business development work. Yep. And then you've moved to the GM position of Asia Pacific Building Corporation, which was started by David Deeg. How did you land this role? Well, firstly, I started with, I studied economics, major money banking and finance out at La Trobe University, and I thought I was going to be a banker. Right. Went and got a, uh, went for an interview with uh, Colonial Mutual at the time, 500 people went for the job. I got down the last three and missed out. And I thought, oh dear, what am I going to do? 1993, we're in the middle of the recession. Didn't want to be no, a teacher, follow you? Didn't want to be a teacher. No. I, and I will touch on that later, that I think I've always wanted to teach and yeah. wanted to, to help people learn. But um, then I, so my uncle said, look, I've got this job at Wilson Parking. It's it's in a kind of business development marketing gig. Do you want to have a crack? And I said, look, I'll go for the interview. Went for the interview, landed the role, thought I'd be in the role for six months. And then I'd go and get a real job. Seven and a half years later, probably the <laughs> best that I've ever, the best grounding I could possibly have ever had. Yes. It gave me exposure across finance, property, marketing, sales, operations, yeah. strategy, vision, culture, and we had to rebuild the whole organization. And with John Larkin, did, we did an amazing job in that seven and a half years. And then I did a couple of deals with David Deeg, and um, one of them was at One Queens Road. And my sense of it was David wasn't happy with the deal. And um, the and as it turned out, he then called me into his office and said, I'm not happy with the deal. I want you to change it. And I said, well, David, firstly, we've got a contract. But more importantly, we shook hands, looked each other in the eye and said, we've got a deal. That's enough for me. So we're not changing the deal. And he said, well, if we're not going to change the deal, you need to come and work for me. <laughs> and uh, he then uh, and we'll, we'll. And why was it? Did, did he ever tell you why? <laughs> He, what he saw in that meeting that... Uh... Funnily enough, I actually never asked right. him. Um, but but he he chased me for, I'm going to say, about a year. And um, Will, Will, tell, Will Deeg will tell you the story that um, one afternoon David calls me, Will's in the car from, from his phone, um, in the car and says, um, you need to come work for me. And he chased me for about 12 months. And I said, look, David, you can't afford me. Now, what I actually meant was that he wanted me to go and run his car park operation, which had four or five car parks, and therefore that wasn't going to sustain um, my ability to be able to come in, pay for my salary, and also then yeah. grow me as an individual. But he took it that he couldn't afford me from a financial perspective, and then he basically pulled me into his office the next week and said, what's it going to take? Great. And, uh, and then there I was at Asian Pacific Building Corporation. I mean, let's just go back to, to Wilson because um, I was interested in what you said about it being, uh, you know, property and, you know, I suppose there's logistics and systems. People don't necessarily think of car parking as this sexy kind of business, but you got deep in and dirty with uh, all facets of business. What I learned about parking, and I think then what I've been able to push across all the other organisations, is that there's a real science to parking and there's a real science to business. And it's really important to understand what that science actually looks like. But the fundamentals of every business is essentially the same. 70% of every organisation is the same. 30% is technically different. Yeah. So that 70% is what Wilson taught me, which was quite extraordinary. Yeah. Asia Pacific Corporation then, you've gone in, finally accepted the role after yep. being chased, headhunted. Um, and then this organisation's gone through a period of really good growth. I'm sure there's been some troubled times during the GFC. 
Were you just in the right place at the right time? In many respects, I think so. But also the organisation needed a lot of change. And I think that David recognised that I was, I was going to be able to bring some of that change. And But seeing the way that David worked, that Will worked, that Jono worked, so the sons in the business, was, um, was absolutely fascinating for me. And even now, um, at, at David's age, he no doubt thinks about the business 18 hours a day, seven days a week. And how about being in a family office where you've got the sons and the father and then you... Are you the glue? Are you having to be the peacemaker? Are you walking a tightrope sometimes? Oh, look, I think I was always walking a tightrope. <laughs> I think I was, um, I think I was, in many respects, probably the challenger as well um, and really challenging the way they thought and the way they were doing business. And, um, and I did that with, um, with my executive colleagues, with uh, Michael Shinton, with Daniel Fagan, uh, and then later with uh, Peter Lenane. And, you know, you've been backed by this family for... A number of years and they you know continue to grow the business and you're an integral part of this um was there any points where you thought you know i've i've trodden on toes here i've done something i'm i'm on the outer oh i've got no doubt yeah. absolutely because when if i felt that i need to say something i'd say it yeah and if i need to challenge david or will or Jono or any of the executives absolutely i would have no problem in doing so what about your own team you know you mentioned a couple of the people there from you know the executive team um, you're exceptionally motivated, incredibly good at working hard. Uh, how did you find a team of like-minded people or did you look for others that were less than you know yourself but complemented you? Early days, I recognised that we really needed to build the right pillars for our organisation to really grow. So we had to have a really strong pillar in finance, a really strong pillar in legal, a really strong pillar um, in operations, and then have that extraordinary expertise and entrepreneurial flair that, that David, Will and Jono have. So by getting that structure and that foundation right first, that was fundamental. And then the next step was around me building my team across the operations. So what was critical was that I needed to build a team that was going to be sustainable and really be able to grow the businesses that, um, that I was uh, managing. So I was leading nine different companies, plus our IT team, our um, design and development team, our um, HR team, and our sales and our marketing group. So over about seven or eight years, I was able to establish a really strong senior management team. So I ended up at one stage having about 20 general managers reporting through to me. Um, and that was a significant challenge up until around 2008, 2009, when I was lucky enough to go to Harvard Business School and do the general management program. Yeah. So that was probably the, um, that was the turning point for me as a leader within the organisation and in many respects um, the ability then for our organisation to take it to the next level. Now, I've seen, you know, uh, looking through a lot of profiles on LinkedIn, I've seen a lot of people who have done different programs at Harvard. Mm -hmm. uh, you said it was a turning point. What exactly happens in this hallowed space that helps people turn corners and see around corners? Harvard Business School was one of the greatest things that I've ever done. And if anyone gets the opportunity to go and study over there, I strongly recommend it. It was the most emotionally, physically, mentally, and even spiritually challenging thing that I've ever done in my life. Um, at the same time, what I learned about myself first and foremost was quite extraordinary and it really turns you inside out. 
Yeah. And it really encourages you to look inside and see who you really are. So that was the first part. The second part then was the network that you actually uh, build over there. And we had 108, I think, um, uh, participants and all 108 we've built amazing relationships and even we had our 10 reunion, year reunion in Boston last year I think we had 25 of the individuals or the participants and of those 25 we were all great mates so that network that it builds has been it was absolutely amazing then it was the living away from home yeah so I grew up in grew up in Brighton went to Brighton Grammar um, very much that South Road, North Road, Nepean Highway border. We'd only go outside of that kind of that <laughs> terrible bubble. Know, bubble, yeah, absolutely. If we were going to another private school to play school cricket, or I was going to uh, my um, uncle's farm uh, on the holidays to to work. So to all of a sudden then be thrusted into Boston in the middle of winter in an environment that was totally foreign, yeah. knowing absolutely no one, yeah. was, again, just such an extraordinary experience. Yeah. But one experience that could go either way. Yeah. You find out a bit about yourself in those out of those comfort zone moments. I found out more about myself in that six months than I had in the previous 35 years. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's extraordinary. So when you came back and you then started looking for people or managing people, what, what did you do better? What was lacking previously in managing these 20 managers? I think firstly was culture and really building a really strong culture and a, a culture that was built on strong values, yep. on strong standards and strong styles. So that was the first part. The second part was having a clear vision on where we wanted to go and really communicating the why. Yeah. Which is we keep on hearing about how important it is that everyone now start with a Y. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. on his on his whiteboard, yeah. that's where or on his on his um, white sheet, that's where he started. Yeah, and what and that and that was at a similar time. So that really cut through in terms of what what Simon was able to communicate and communicate so simply. Yeah, and it was dumbing down the message and not trying to overcomplicate things. Then um, then was around getting the right. Um, fundamentals and the right foundation within the organisation. Yeah. So once we were able to get that and getting all the fundamentals absolutely right, then we were able to have the right accountabilities um, and and have the right respect and be able to celebrate the right moments. And that was a key part of our growth. So all of a sudden, as Asia Pacific Corporation's growing, um, you get tapped on the shoulder, I guess, at some point in time and you start focusing on a new series of hotels, the Art Series Hotels, uh, which I assume many listeners have probably stayed at. Um, how did this happen and what did you actually know about hotels? Yeah, great question again. This was really David and Will's brainchild and we were in um, commercial buildings, we were in residential buildings. We had a hotel out at Bell City, which is the old Patch Hospital, um, that had reasonable success and then we leased a property that we um, it developed for Oaks at 480 Collins Street. And I think it was that that sparked David's understanding that there was a much better opportunity to be able to create something that was completely new and that was going to be able to drive great value to not just the company but to the community. So out of that, um, again, we spoke about it as an executive and how we were going to strategize around developing Art Series Hotels, mainly driven from David and Will, and then, um, yeah, then I got the tap on the shoulder to say, we want you to run them. And I made it perfectly clear that one, that I was running all these other companies, I didn't have the time. 
And secondly, I had no idea about hotels. <laughs> and for me, I think... You seem like the obvious choice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think that was for... That was one of the reasons why... Um, that I did have this, I guess, this leadership and management and business experience um, and that I was going to be able to bring that structure across to Art Series Hotels. But also the fact that I didn't have hotel experience, I think that David and Will and the executive felt that that was a real benefit. And, and because we did surround ourselves with a number of hotel general managers who were fantastic at what they did, having that... Um, that voice and that vision that was not hotel focused and not born from hotels, I think was a real advantage for the group. So you go into starting something like this, you know, and yourself and this organisation has very little IP, obviously a bit of corporate knowledge, but no real proprietary IP in the hotel space. Uh, how do you start off with this blank canvas? Do you decide to partner? Do you decide to uh, look up something on Wikipedia, yeah. build a hotel? I mean, how do you get going? We, as Asian Pacific Building Corporation, we, and then Asian Pacific Group, we always wanted to run things ourselves. And, and that was something that, that David really um, embedded into our thinking that we can do it and we can do it better. And it's really important to control the whole experience for our client or for our customer. So that was, therefore, we gave cons- real thought into Art Series being completely blank canvassed by Asian Pacific Group. But at the same time, we recognised that we needed that back-end experience um, and understanding from an operational perspective, from a finance perspective, from a marketing and sales perspective, and almost having all those manuals and those operational manuals um, and that the technical expertise, and that was that 30% I spoke about before, that 30% of technical technical expertise. So we ended up going to uh, Ridges Hotels and doing a deal with them for them to look after the back end, and then we looked after the front end. Did they have any sort of input into when you design a hotel, you need to keep these things in mind so it's easy to take bed sheets off or anything like that? Look, they, they would have liked to have more influence, yeah. um, but I guess um, the company were focused on property development and maximising space, and therefore they um, there's not always the room to allocate for that if we can all of a sudden squeeze an extra room into the property. Yeah, and how's, and how's the pressure? I mean, you've been backed again to run this by, you know, the D Group and Asia Pacific Corporation. Uh, limited experience in this hotel space. Obviously, you know, with property, there's massive time frames. Otherwise, it's burning a, a huge hole in your pocket. Uh, how do you cope with this kind of pressure and this kind of expectation? There was always pressure, but I always saw it as an opportunity. So I focused on the opportunity side rather than, rather than the pressure side. There were times when there's no doubt that it probably got too much, but I was a natural workaholic. So I would comfortably be in the office at four in the morning. And in fact... I tell the story that, you know, Will and I used to have a competition on who could get into the office first. And um, and I remember, you know, I'd, I'd be leaving my place and driving along um, St Kilda Road and it'd be quarter to four in the morning and I'd get a traffic light and I'd be really annoyed because yeah. I just wanted to get to the office and get the day going. <laughs> and literally that might have held me back by 30 seconds or 45 seconds. But that was my whole focus was just to get in there and make things happen. And so, again, back to one of the things I asked earlier with, you know, other people and expectation, you're in at four in the morning. I mean, obviously, it's a good time to do emails and clear out some of the stuff on your to-do list. Mm-hmm. But does it ever frustrate you that some of the people around you didn't have that level of commitment or desire? I think early days, absolutely. But then I understood that 
I needed to respect them for what they were actually bringing to the table and that I couldn't put my own expectations on them in terms of how I live my life. So because I didn't want them to be putting their expectations on how I live mine. So I thought that there needed to be a balance. And also because I just loved it and I was that excited that I couldn't sleep anyway. So I may as well, rather than look at the ceiling, I may as well be in the office. What, um, looking back at this process of building, you know, these, these hotels, what do you think, you lie awake sometimes and think, geez, I wish I had done this differently. What are the biggest <laughs> mistakes you made in building that business up? That's an excellent question. Let me give that some thought. Yeah, I, I don't think, when I look back on it, and it's, and it's been some time now and I've been out of the game for, for almost two years, I don't feel that we made a huge number of mistakes. I think that there are ways that we could, could have communicated with our general managers more effectively, absolutely. Um, and I think that, but we created this extraordinary culture and when I say we, it wasn't me. It was, it was our general management team, it was our hotel team that created this extraordinary culture, this extraordinary focus on the customer and this ability that whilst some of our hotels were 220 rooms, it really felt like this boutique nature. And one of the things I'm proudest about is that even now, and I've been, like I said, I've been out for two years and we sold to, um, to Mantra two years ago. What's been amazing is that David came up with this concept and Will came up with this concept about building these, this hotel group. We had eight hotels, eight boutique hotels. We had, um, and none of, them were, none of them were in a CBD. They were all both based in the outskirts of a CBD. So we were in St Kilda Road, we were in Commercial Road and Chapel Street in Melbourne, and then the Lowell um, in, uh, in Parkville. We had uh, a property in Spring Hill in Brisbane. We had a property in... Walkerville in Adelaide. Most people don't even know where Walkerville is. I went to uh, I went to kindergarten in Walkerville. Did you really? I did. I think it's the smallest council in Australia. Is it really? I think it might be. Well, that, <laughs> I think we uh, we bought the old transport building and then converted right. the old transport yes, building. Yes, I know the one. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and it had amazing views. So what we were able to do is we created this um, this brand called Art Series. Yeah, and um, we but now when I get around Melbourne and, and talk to people and they say, oh, what was your past? And I'm, I say, I work at Wilson Parking and Asian Pacific Group. Oh, what did you do at Asian Pacific Group? I was involved with Art Series Hotel Group. Everyone knows Art Series. Everyone knows Art Series. And, and if they don't know Art Series, they know the Olsen or the Cullen or the Blackman and they've all had a fabulous experience. Yes. Or more often than not, have had yeah. a fabulous experience. So that's that, to me, when I look back and say, what mistakes? Certainly there are things we could have done better. But I think... Overall, we did it really well. Yeah. And I'm really proud of that. And so you've been out of the game for two years. What led you to then saying, you know, <laughs> had a great career with the, the D family, um, done some great things, but time for a change. I was exhausted. There's nothing short of that. I um, <laughs> was absolutely spent and I gave it everything I had um, and I just couldn't give anything more. And then that's really when I – and I ended up, actually ended up in uh, – in, sadly, I ended up in hospital. And um, for seven days, I was in isolation. And that was in July of 2017. And it was out of that that where I was literally in the hospital bed. I'm pretty physically fit. I love my sport. I love my activity. And I couldn't get to the ensuite without support and assistance. And my brain was going many miles an hour. My body just gave up. And so the adrenaline gland had nothing left to give. Absolutely shot. 
And how's the conversation then going to uh, your your boss, your mentor, someone you've worked with, built great things together, um, no doubt have a very close relationship and say, I'm done? I think that they saw it as well. Okay. I, I think that we really understood that it was time now for the whole organisation to take to make a change. Yeah. And um, and there was, there was talk about, well, can you work part-time? And there's no such thing as working part-time um, for someone like the Deegs. And, and I say that with the utmost of respect. But I remember saying to David one day, well, if I work part-time, let's say I worked Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, so that means you won't contact me Monday, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Oh, no, no. No, no, no. <laughs> no, if I need to contact you, and I would want him to contact me. So so this is where part-time just doesn't work. Yeah. So, and I also knew that I knew that they needed the change yeah. um, and, and that I absolutely need But it was a, there's, there's a bit of broke back mountain here. I can't quit you kind of thing. It's hard to, it's hard to find a clean cut. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I honestly, when, when I was thinking about finishing up, I thought that they, that I would just go and find a really strong replacement. Um, someone who's going to do a far better job than I'd done and really take that business to an even greater level. And um, they really took the position that it was an opportunity for them to, to really change the the structure of their company, and we ended up selling a number of the businesses. So we sold our telecommunications company, sold our facilities management company, sold yeah. our owners corporation company. Yeah. We sold our um, hotel company, and um, and then once that was all kind of packaged up, then I could leave knowing that yeah, you know, I'd done my absolute best. For the yeah, you've gone, gone from start almost to finish. Yeah, had, a, had an exit absolutely. And, and one of the things I always loved about Asia Pacific Corporation, I've told you before, was the the level of horizontal and vertical integration that you would find it, you know, for example, one's one Queens Road. It's an iconic building in Melbourne where mm-hmm. Kingsway starts. But from the moment you drive in there uh, to the car park, to picking up the telephone, to using one of the boardrooms, everything was invoiced by this company. I mean, yep. it was a great money making machine. Everything was interconnected, and the the driver from, for that was not how we could invoice every client as many times as we possibly can. The drive, was to tr- the drive was to try and look at an experience and control the whole experience that was um, and maintain the whole experience for the customer. Well, let me tell you, as a startup business in there, it must be 15, 16 years ago, it felt like they were trying to invoice you for breathing in there. <laughs> I've got no doubt. Yeah. And I, I can assure you that the... <laughs> Oh, the complications that that created was was massive, yeah. and that's where the culture of our group and that that one family one group culture that we drove was really important. Yeah, yeah. You've now moved away from building and property, and you've moved into well aware. Um, you've said you've had this, uh, you know, moment where you've thought uh, done with done with corporate, time to move into something else. Why this, or how did how did this come about in your head? So I touched earlier on the fact that I was in hospital in July 2017. And when I was in hospital, I was really... The, the doctors didn't know what was wrong with me. And that, I guess, frightened me. And that I just didn't know why physically I was feeling the way I was feeling. To the point where I, I was literally struggling to breathe. And, um, and I think it was just a case of 23 years of corporate life yeah. just caught up with me. Yeah. And um, it was like a chronic fatigue syndrome, kind of. Yeah, I think it may have been. Um, it was just basically my body just shut down. Yeah, and I think that the the one of the things that 
I was really bad at. And it, and you touched on mistakes. I think I've made mistakes about me in the last you know ten years or fifteen years. One of those is that I'd never had a holiday, so I'd never gone away for more than ten days, and that includes weekends. So I might take a week off, so Monday to Friday, and then we'd leave on the Friday night, and I'd be back on the Sunday, back to work on the on the Monday week. Did you still have phone calls during those holidays? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it would get to 11 o'clock, and I'd be going, what do I do now? <laughs> Open up the computer, check the phone. So I was terrible. Yeah. yeah and that was, for me, I needed to stop um, being that person. I needed to stop pretending to try to be someone that, that, um, that I guess it, it came down to happiness. And I recognised that I wasn't happy because I was pretending to and to drive this um, this organisation and myself to a level that became unsustainable in July 2017. So why lying in bed there? I just thought something's got to give. At the same time, my one of my best mates' dads died of a heart attack. Uh, my uncle died of a heart attack. My mum had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And I had all of this chronic disease that was going on around me. And, and at the same time, the GPs and the medical specialists at the hospital couldn't tell me what was wrong with me. So doing what I normally do, I thought, well, I'm going to find out myself. So I started doing all this research around my internal organs. And it was out of that research that I recognised that early detection was actually the key. And that we had, tragically last year, about 171,000 Australians died. 114,000 died of chronic disease, being heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, cancer, and mental health. And of those 114,000, the key research foundations, such as the Cancer Council, Heart Foundation, or Stroke Foundation, um, Australian Government, um, Health Direct, they believe that in excess of 80% of those 114,000 people shouldn't have died. And the driver for that is because that they're not getting detected. And there is a, and what we're seeing with breast cancer and what we've seen with breast cancer over the last 25 years is that the number of people, number of women who are now getting mammograms has increased incredibly. Still only 40% of women get mammograms. But of that, of that number, the number of people that are being diagnosed with breast cancer has gone up. The number of people dying from breast cancer is going through yeah, the floor. Yeah. And that's the key. Yeah. So, I and I've always had this passion for always had this passion for health, always had this passion for to help people. And now all of a sudden I just saw this opportunity to say, I have this knowledge, I have this information, albeit at a very surface level, what can I now do with that to help change people's lives? Yeah. And and that was about my family, that was about my friends, that was about my community, and then the broader the broader community. So you've you've gone in and started this, um, you know, with a couple of founders, co-founders. What's the difference between uh, working in an organisation where you've got you know twenty GMs, yep. and then there's just Matthew Tom sitting in a room with a laptop, going, "I have an idea. I'm going to build a business." So from July to December, um, in any spare time I had, which wasn't a lot, I would um, do as much research as I possibly could. Um, in uh, in 2017, and ended up writing a full business paper and positioning that business paper to Chris Hall, who's now one of my co-founders, uh, to say, I think I've got something here, and I think this is something we need to investigate. He was looking at something very similar, but um, in uh, and and that's now sits on our roadmap in terms of where we want to take it, and um, and at the same time, 
I then got in contact with uh, Tommy McCubbin, which is actually through John O'Deague, and Tommy's dad died of esophagus cancer. And Tommy um, was looking to develop this one-day platform where we that was focused on cancers. So all of a sudden, we had three people all with essentially the same vision and the same strategy. Just we didn't. Um, we just needed the ability to be able to execute it. So in terms of now, Matthew Tom sitting in a room. It's a completely different world, um, and it's one that takes a hell of a lot of self motivation to be able to keep driving it. But because I'm so incredibly passionate about yeah. it, and I honestly think that we can make a significant difference, yeah. that and we can honestly save lives, but not just save lives, but also reduce the impact that these chronic diseases are having on um, the people that we care about, let alone the broader community. That is something that just drives me every day. And I think, uh, you know, what I see with a lot of my friends and colleagues as well is, you know, we, we think we're okay on the inside. We really don't know. And there's these sort of markers out there that says, you know, once you get to 50, you've got to have a check on your prostate or whatever. But, you know, if something's going wrong, by the time you go see a doctor, if you haven't done your, you know, your, uh, your checking earlier, it, it's too late sometimes. Absolutely. And we, our health literacy in Australia is around 6 to 7%. Um, and what I mean by that is that between 6 and 7% of Australians have a moderate to above moderate understanding of their health. Now, that is far too low. And we are just seeing time and time again that early detection prevents. So that is an absolute fact. Um, in excess of 90% of heart diseases are preventable. In excess of 90% of bowel cancers are preventable. In excess of um, 90% of breast cancers is preventable. 58% of type 2 diabetes can be turned around. So all of these, in 98% of skin tumours um, for skin cancers can be, can be um, repaired. All of these stats are out there. And, but what we, we just don't know. We don't know when we should be tested, why we should be tested, yep. how we should be tested, yep. what we should be speaking to yep. the GP about. We maintain our motor vehicle better than we maintain our own bodies. Yeah. And we maintain our motor vehicles in a preventative way. And you probably know when your motor vehicle is next due to be serviced. Yep, July next year. There we go. And when you put it in for service, you'll be asking them to check everything. Yeah. And it's not because there's something wrong. It's because you want to make sure that something doesn't go wrong. Yeah. And that's the huge behavioral shift that we need to make as individuals yeah. um, for ourselves and for the people that we care about so that we can actually get ahead of these crimes. Yeah, it's fascinating because I would generally only ring up the GP when I feel unwell rather than going, you know what, I feel good, but let's check anyway. Let's start focusing on our current and our future health, yeah. not just about our ailment that we've got at the moment. Yeah, no, it's excellent. Um, one of the other things you've been involved in in helping people as well, uh, the not-for-profit, the Irvine Club, which has raised over $2 million for charities such as Beyond Blue, uh, the Westpac Lifesaver Rescue Helicopters. Um, what was it, again, that made you want to start a charity? Um, some can be cynical and say, you know, it's just for networking. But, yep, uh, absolutely. We, um, so the Irvine Club was started by, um, by a small group of us, so, and it was initiated by um, Cam Dunlop and uh, Paul Grant, and then they brought in Andy Evans and myself, and then, um, and then down the track, Scotty McGuinness. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to find a format where we could have a boys' lunch. We were in our early 30s. A lot of us were getting married, having kids, and we just weren't catching up um, as mates. And, and so we just thought, what's an opportunity to be able to change that? 
So rather than just have a lunch on a Friday and we get 10 or 12 mates and we go to a lunch in Collins Street and everyone gets a little bit too blotto and goes home and and, uh, and our uh, lovely partners say, you're not doing that again. <laughs> we wanted to find We wanted to find a vehicle where yeah. we could actually bring the people that we care about again and that we um, wanted to look after. We wanted to find a vehicle where we could bring everyone together into a room and have a beer, have a laugh, really celebrate mateship, but also look after the community. Yeah. So by yeah. what we've been able to do with Irvine, it's been quite extraordinary. And again, it's probably one of the proudest things that I've been involved with because not only have we raised some considerable amount of money for some incredible charities and a lot of those charities are smaller charities where and one of the one of the best ones for me was Zadie's Rainbow Foundation. Alan Turner tragically lost his daughter um Zadie um and to a brain aneurysm and she was the only only girl and I think the only child under the age of 16 to donate her tissues and organs and he was looking to launch his charity so we heard about what he was doing and we got behind him and now that's been operating for 12 or 13 years and they've done some amazing things for tissue and organ donation. Fantastic. So this this ability to not only um, bring our mates together, have a beer and have a laugh, but also support the community and also we we encourage the charities to come along and talk about what they're doing. And it's not just about the money you raise, but it's also about the awareness. Yeah. And that awareness, and we, if you imagine, we've got 450 guys in the room, um, and of those 450 guys and girls, we've got, um, there's a huge network, and that network, there are people, there's not a dry eye in the room. And, yeah, um, actually, and- I, I remember seeing um, one of these lunches, uh, I can't remember when it was, must be a decade ago, um, and the gentleman who spoke had lost his son to a, a coward punch attack in the city. Um, and it really was not a dry eye, very moving stuff, and it, it still sticks with me very vividly till this day. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to jump back, if I may, to, yeah, to well aware. One of the things you had to do is get some technology built. Mm. So, um, you know, how do you go about starting an MVP, working out how much money to put in, um, you know, what did that process look like? We, I've been involved in a couple of other startups. Um, so one with Ubi Park and one with uh, Access4. And that's cre- that taught me a hell of a lot. And they're both still operating and operating really well. And um, so I knew that it was critical that we got really good developers. Um, but we were absolutely 100% crystal clear on what we actually needed and what we actually wanted to look like and what we wanted the MVP to look like. So we, um, we scoped it out in excruciating detail. And, um, and with that, we were able to then put it to the market and go to a yeah. number of developers. But again, we used our network for our developers. Yeah. So we didn't just go to the yellow pages or go to Google and say, here you go, here's, here's five, that will do. We really um, spoke to our network and said, who would you recommend? Yeah. Who have you had success with? Yeah. So again, going into WellAware, you want to grow this. What's the what's the global ambition? What's the potential, and what makes you and your team think you're you're the people to carry it off? What's key to us is that we are aggregating all the key information. Yep. So we have built great relationships with Cancer Council, with Heart Foundation, and, and other great research foundations. We're not making the information up and the content up. All this content is some of the best um, best focused and health information that's available in the world. So we're aggregating all that information first and foremost. 
and then where we think we why we think we've got a really good success um, module is that we've made it really simple and we've made it simple to inform and educate Australians this is not complicating it this is dumbing down the message so we all can understand and really have a focus where it can just hold our hands on when we should be tested why how when where and really challenge our GPS to support us more in terms of our current and future health. yeah yeah where we the greater the next part of that success is actually influencing people yeah. so this is going to take a huge behavioral change yeah we as humans are inherently terrible when it comes to our own health and therefore that behavioral shift is going to be massive so it's the engagement and that communication and that support that we're going to need to to drive yes. is going to be key so i mean you're obviously loving it obviously passionate about it recognize the amount of time and energy that's going to be required but in doing that you know compared to your previous corporate life when you've got 20 people reporting to you nine businesses things happening at a million miles an hour yep. how's the speed differential of how things uh, are occurring for you the speed differential is it's just very different i understood that i needed to slow down just a little bit i just need to take the foot off the pedal and not try and drive at 100 110 kilometers an hour but understand that driving at 60 in a 60 zone and 80 in an 80 zone is actually okay so that ability to be able to learn to breathe again was really important to me so part of why i wanted to to do this was one is that i really care for people and i really wanted to see how i can influence people for the better the other part was that i really care for myself and i really needed to understand how i could learn to slow down just yeah. a little bit so in terms of um that ability i'll still get up i'll be up at 5 30 quarter six every morning and then straight onto my bike or hit the gym or go for a run and then get back do some work and then if i need to take the dog for a walk go and take the dog for a walk for 20 minutes and just clear the mind or listen to one of your podcasts oh great so which which i love yeah so um and listen to a podcast or or check some emails just while i'm walking around the park rather than the intensity of of doing it at the desk yeah but then we will have you know a number of meetings that will structure for the week and then in between that, we're building our content, we're building our communication, we're building our engagement platform, um, plus I do my business coaching on the side, and that gives me a very full week. Plus then, it has now given me the ability to go and drop the kids to school and go and pick the kids up from school every now and then. Yeah. My kids are now 17 and 15, so they're really young adults. But having that time just to be able to do that and for them to know they can depend on me is, is something that's really special. So a big quantum shift from corporate to startup. Absolutely. But I can assure you that I've moved from St Kilda Road Towers or, or um, 474 St Kilda Road um, and now I'm at Brighton Library. And, um, and I'm there at Brighton Library. Back on, in the bubble. And back and on Saturday on Saturdays they open at 10, so you want to get there about 5 to 10 um, so that you can get a desk. And because all the uh, all the kids, all the um, all the school kids are studying for their exams, so it's a bit of a battle to go and get a desk. <laughs> and uh, but then I'll work like last Saturday. I work from you know ten to two, ten to three on the Saturday. So my work ethic hasn't changed. It's just about understanding and recognizing when I need to breathe Pacing and yourself. just take it, yeah. take take the foot off the accelerator every now and then. Superb. Well, let's change pace again completely and go from the world of business to the quick fire round. What do you think? is the kindest thing that anyone has ever said to you. Thank you. If you got hit by a bus today and killed, what is the one thing you would say, I wish I had done that? I think 
one of the great one of the things that I've missed out on is genuine overseas travel. So when I um, finished up with with um, the Deegs in end of 2017, I committed 2018 to go and travel. And so um, my girlfriend and I went and travelled um, through Europe uh, for five to six weeks. I came back for the Collingwood prelim final and grand final <laughs> and then uh, headed off to New York and Boston. So it was... You um, probably should have stayed overseas. Probably should have. <laughs> but that's okay. I was there with my son and that's what, what was most important. And um, we... So that the travel aspect. So I think that that's one thing that I really want to do more and... Um, and if you want to know where, because that may be your next question, it's really from the top of Italy to the bottom of Italy. I just want to do it properly. Go and go and spend eight weeks and really experience it. Yeah, we took the kids to Italy a couple of months ago, and um, I could easily throw it all in and live in one of those beautiful hilltop towns in Pienza or Montepulciano, Montepulcino, San Gimignano, and just move there. It's just a wonderful country. Well, I want to experience exactly what you just said. Yeah. Um, well, that was one of the next questions. If you could go anywhere now for lunch, where would that be? Oh, if I was just going for lunch, I would uh, take my girlfriend and six or eight mates and we'd be somewhere in New York. Who's your favourite comedian? Probably Jerry Seinfeld. What's your favourite movie? Probably Star Wars. And probably Star Wars because it was one of the movies that I remember as a child. But also it's been something I've been able to pick up with my son. Favourite band? In the old days, it was any of the great 80s, so any of the 80s classics, so whether it be U2, whether it be um, In Excess, yeah, whether it be Noise Works, Hunters and Collectors, um, Hoodoo Gurus, any yeah. of those. And then more recently, um, probably, and it's not a band, but he's a DJ, is Cargo, and we saw Cargo in Ibiza. You won't believe this. Have a look at what I was listening to this morning. Cloud Nine, Cargo. Love it. Um, I didn't plant that idea yep. in your head. And I would say I was on uh, Qantas flight last week coming back from Sydney and um, they had Mystify, which is the Michael Hutchins documentary, which is coming up on uh, the ABC mm-hmm. here. It was absolutely extraordinary to get back into that story of a great 80s band, but also the music, which is you're timeless. Yeah, I think In Excess Kick is one of the greatest it Australian is. albums, if not worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. Um what culture fascinates you? I love all cultures, and I think that's something that respecting and understanding all cultures has been great for me. Um, one thing, one um, through a friend of mine, I really started to get a little bit embedded into the Muslim culture, which, again, was absolutely fascinating for me. So, um, But I'll, the more I can learn about culture, the better. What advice would you give for, I've got to say, young entrepreneurs, but young people in business as well trying to build a corporate career? First and foremost, you get out of life what you put into it. You get out of business what you put into it. So the more you commit, the more you'll get. Matthew Toms, thank you for sharing all this incredible information. Best of luck with WellAware because it's not just a business, it's a, a way of making people's lives better. Um, I'm sure it will be very helpful to every listener. Thank you very much for being on Discipline. Thanks, Tony, and thanks for your amazing support.